0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 540 of this podcast. Today is January 18th. 2023 and a Wednesday, and we've got a lot to talk about in this episode, including, but not limited to Meta, which is the parent company for Facebook and Instagram, revising or revisiting, possibly revising their nudity policy. Also, we'll be sharing some quotes from It's Good to Be a Man, a book I just recently Finished reading. We'll talk about what AR 15 stands for. What does the A and the R stand for in AR 15? Also, some encouraging stories, some good stories, some happy stories about men being men, and additional reasons why you, if you haven't yet, should get your kids out of the public education system. Some updates on China, I think, are in order as well, particularly with regards to their population and the outcome, the consequences of the one-child policy, which was in effect for so long in that country. And a couple of items pertaining to the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, now the Speaker of the House, making some decisions, making some moves, making some changes, Finally, we will talk about the Great Reset and how it ties into all of these other things. But starting from the top, let's touch on a tweet from Seth Dillon, Babylon B CEO, Seth Dillon, uh, regarding Facebook, regarding Meta and it reviewing the policy. Pertaining to adult nudity and sexual activity. There's a screenshot in Seth Dillon's tweet of a letter from the oversight board at Meta. And I quote Meta's adult nudity and sexual activity policy prohibits images containing female nipples other than in specified circumstances, such as medical and health contexts. However, these restrictions are extensive and confusing particularly as they apply to transgender and non-binary people. The policy is also based on a binary view of gender and a distinction between male and female bodies. This makes it unclear how the rules apply to intersex, non-binary, and transgender people and requires reviewers to make rapid and subjective assessments of sex and gender. And of course, they see that as being problematic. That is a little bit of a difficulty. What are we going to do in order to be consistent? Now, I think you are aware that several years ago, fairly concurrent with the Me Too movement, there was another hashtag movement called Free the Nipple. Free the Nipple has as its premise that it's unfair. It is prejudicial. It is oppressive. It is Bigoted, misogynistic, perhaps that men are allowed to go around bare-chested and women are not in all of the same places that men are. That's not fair. That's sexist. That's repressive. That needs to change. And so far, you know, maybe you could agree. You could say, "Well, I don't think that men should go around bare-chested either." But that's not the conclusion that they come to. <laughs> they want consistency. In the opposite direction to say, well, if men can do it, then women should be able to do it too. And this is part of what is coming out in Meta's uh, review of policy, is that they have embraced the premise of the Free the Nipple movement, which is not just that we should have some consistency here, but that we should have some consistency in the direction of saying anything that... Men are doing, women ought to be allowed to do as well. Consistency could work the opposite direction, but they don't have that in view because good luck telling all the men, you have to keep your shirts on all the time, no matter what. But then again, they're not going to make everybody happy, whatever they change here. Even if they stayed the same, they're not going to make everybody happy. People are already not happy that there is a perceived double standard and If you make it a consistent standard, the people who actually like that there was what appears to be, to some eyes, a double standard, uh, people aren't going to like that you make it consistent and uniform and, dare I say it, androgynous, regardless of whether this is a man or a woman, or this person claims to be a man, but they're really a woman, or they claim to be a woman, but they're really a man, this would be a great deal simpler if We could just get at what is true and what is good and what is beautiful objectively. And people can feel however they want to feel, but we're going to stick to what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And that's just what it is. But it is curious. It is curious. I was thinking about this with regards to marriage as well, as I was reviewing some very helpful notes I got back from Michelle Kanashog at our church, Summit View Community Church in Greeley Evans, Colorado. She had some helpful notes with the manuscript that I gave her for my book, and this is why we got married. In particular, I think here of her putting a note saying, oh, I'd never thought of that. To a observation I wrote in in my section on marriage equality or marriage inequality, I think is the title of my chapter, at least at present, where I hearken back to when we were debating whether there should be such a thing as gay marriage, whether we should declare that gay men and lesbian women can be married to one another. The same way that traditionally, historically, biblically, men have married women throughout history for thousands of years. One of the charges of the folks who were for so-called marriage equality was that they weren't destroying marriage. They weren't uh, damaging the institution of marriage in the United States of America or fill in the blank, whatever country around the world, which also revised its laws and its norms around the same time. Not for no reason. That's a story for another day. They said, in the context of America, look at the divorce rate, look at Men and women cheating on each other. Look at what is the state of marriage. Even if you just keep to the heterosexual standard, heterosexual couples, even Christians supposedly, have already tarnished marriage. And so we're not tarnishing anything. We're just saying we want marriage as well. And I point out in my book, I say, well, (laughs) if you were going to try and make things better, you know, couldn't you, instead of putting your energies and attentions and your arguing ability into marriage equality, so-called, couldn't you have instead put all of that into trying to reverse the trends regarding divorce? Couldn't you have put your attention into trying to make heterosexual marriages more faithful, more loving, more God-honoring if You're really concerned about it. Why would you jump on the bandwagon, as it were, and then say, well, everybody's doing it, so why not me, too? Why not us also tearing down marriage in a new way and just finishing it off? And so, Michelle, you know, it wasn't a corrective. She actually gave me lots of very helpful recommendations as far as I would reword this, this is confusing, you need a comma here, or I would break this into two sentences. Helpful feedback in this case, it was helpful that she just said, huh, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. But here also, right here also, if we look at the fact that there is nudity on the internet, including places like Facebook and Instagram, you have people posting images of their bodies or photos and images and videos of them performing Uh, You know, various activities that are not appropriate. We've held for quite some time. These are not appropriate things to be displaying in public. You don't even have to just be a Christian, just having a basic sense of morality that is Western in its outlook, not even just Western, but Western in its outlook in our context for a long time, all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans held that these were not the best right? Not the best. Immoral, lacking in virtue that sexual activity would be presented in public. Nudity, on the other hand, that has been a debate for a long, long time, whether the human form should be presented unclothed. We could say, well, if it's art, then it's okay. But how do you determine when it is art and when somebody's just saying that it's art because they don't want to be suppressed or they don't want to be told no or they don't want to be censored right either way it is a debate but you could even you could easily just as easily standardize the debate by saying everybody keep your clothes on please we don't need to see that we don't want to see that please wear a shirt and something down below whether that be a pair of pants or shorts or skirt or something like wear cover up right we we don't need to be seeing Uh, all of you the way that you are presenting all of yourself they could easily standardize it in the direction of everybody keep your clothes on but as it is their big question here is is it sexist towards women if we say you have to keep parts of your body covered that men are not required to also now that we're in this transgender moment where you have men claiming that they're women, women claiming that they're men, increasing uh, numbers of Americans of all ages, pursuing surgery, hormone therapy, cross-dressing, because they think that they'll be happier or more fulfilled or more celebrated, more affirmed, more powerful, more contented uh, by so doing. What do you do when it comes time to potentially tell them no? oh they don 't they don 't want to hear no these days if you haven 't noticed so what do you do then if if they say well i 'm a actually a man, but they clearly have female anatomy now you 're going to have to make a judgment as to their gender and that 's hard that 's difficult. Why is that difficult because it 's been made difficult through pressure campaigns, through propaganda, through brainwashing through the collective moral insanity, which is now fashionable, which is being used, I would say, to leverage an upending of the old world order more comprehensively. It's not just gender and sexuality, but rather the old social imaginary, which is being torn down. And this is just one of the ways to do so because we get weird and we get uncomfortable and It's highly effective in unsettling and destabilizing people to make it about sex and to make it about the human body. There is a kind of shame that we, many of us, feel or have typically, traditionally felt, which is being rejected. We don't want to feel ashamed. Yes, but is that shame actually the problem or is the sin that that shame comes from the problem, our own sin, the sin of other people around us, that's what actually is making us uncomfortable. It's not the shame itself. You can't just say there is no such thing as sin, like Merriam-Webster recently did, true story, in removing the word sin from the dictionary. Now, I think you can still find it on their website, but in their print dictionaries, for instance, uh, the Christian Post, Elena Garcia, reported that Oxford Junior Dictionary was dropping Christian words back in 2008. This isn't a new, new thing, but it doesn't have to have just happened yesterday to be important. It may be more significant if we realize this has been going on for decades and we start tracking when we started paying attention versus how far back this actually goes. It it might be helpful to establish that this is part of a larger program and plan And it's not just a passing fancy that words like bishop, chapel, disciple, minister, sin, devil have been released in the past few decades by words like blog and biodegradable and mp3 player and democratic and celebrity. Those words are coming into our dictionaries. Oxford, Merriam-Webster, words like sin are literally being removed from the dictionary. But the sin actually is, whether you remove it from the dictionary or not, the sin, the transgression of God's standard, is the actual source of our shame, whether it's our own sin or it's the sin of other people in our vicinity. We can't get around that, and just ignoring it isn't going to make it go away. But speaking of gender and sin and God's word and how we define things, I'll share with you some quotes that Canon Press posted to Instagram here recently regarding It's Good to Be a Man, this book that I just recently read, published by Canon Press, written by Michael Foster and Benon Tennant, quote, the Western church is overwhelmingly comprised of women of both sexes, page 86. Quote, modern Christian men are faced with an impossible dilemma. Lay aside their masculinity or lay aside Christianity. Page 86. Quote, when women hold power in a church, whether officially or unofficially, two things tend to happen. One, they strive to include anyone agreeable, regardless of error. Two, they strive to exclude anyone disagreeable, regardless of orthodoxy. Page 89. Continuing on, the reason... For this is not due to some defect in women. On the contrary, it is exactly because God designed them to be the knitters together of a society. However, without masculine rulership, it easily turns grotesque and pathological with subtle hierarchies and cliques and unspoken rules that exclude anyone deemed offensive. Hmm. Hmm. Is that true? Is that right? I, I think they're onto something. Actually, I think they're onto something. Here's another quote from page 91. When women rule, orthodoxy withers. Because of their desire for everyone to play nice, they are very likely to approve and endorse flatterers, hirelings, soft men, and equally likely to disapprove and ostracize truth-tellers, shepherds, tough men. Hmm. Again, I think that is correct. That is what I have observed, and that fits. From page 94, quote, Thus we find ourselves in the church effeminate, where men may check in their testicles with the usher in skinny jeans, sign a waiver promising not to upset the women, and softly croon about their boyfriend Jesus, or they may be escorted to the door. End quote. Is the church in America entirely too feminine and effeminate? Yes, that is accurate. There's an excellent book that was Published here, I think it was 15 to 20 years ago, somewhere in there, closer to 15 years ago, because it was in the bookstore at Cedarville University when Lauren and I were attending there. But the book is titled, Why Men Hate Going to Church. And I would say that it's good to be a man and why men hate going to church are onto something. They are capturing a real problem that is a consequence of of being conformed to the pattern of this world in the church, actually helping to drive that pattern of the world by wanting too much to be spoken well of by men and not wanting enough to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. The gender madness with regards to transgenderism is not coming out of nowhere randomly. It's not going to just disappear and fade away. The only way to combat it will be if we return to the truth of God's word and, yes, conclude that it is good to be a man. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything that Foster and Tennant have to say, I would agree with in every detail, but they are more right than many of their detractors, I maintain. The bigger problem is not that they said these things or that they thought these things, The bigger problem is not even if they could have said it a different way and we need to lecture them about tone. That also is a mark of an effeminate approach to Christianity and the Christian faith. Do we want to be foppish or do we want to be faithful? My concern would be let's not be foppish when it comes to being effeminate. If that is the fashion, and it is in far too many places, also, and this would be what I'll leave you with, for the moment, regarding it's good to be a man. Let's not be foppish about a macho Christianity to where we are overly concerned, excessively concerned with appearances. Keep the main thing, the main thing. The main thing will tie in with actually playing the man, girding up our loins, being manly instead of effeminate. It will relate there. Let's not go above and beyond Just to lean into that and find ourselves right back where we started. That's my caution. That's what I'll say, but let's move on. Speaking of definitions and knowing the meaning of words and terms, knowing what you're talking about, Geraldo Rivera is a personality on the Fox News channel, also uh, a person of the left, very clearly. He is not a conservative. He's not a Republican. He is one of the voices of opposition that they keep around so that they have a foil to bounce things off of and to yell at and to make people angry so they keep tuning in. I only bring him up because this is a popular uh, misdefinition, misconception by those who are trying to ban guns. I think this is of a piece with the church effeminate men losing their manliness, generally speaking, society devaluing men generally. But in a debate about gun control recently on The Five, one of the Fox News Channel shows, Geraldo Rivera chimed in in answer to a question from Greg Gutfield as to what AR stands for. Here's what he had to say.
1: It it makes makes macho the People who possess it, oh, look at me, I'm a big it's deal. It's a rifle, and uh, it's, it's not a rifle, yes, it's Greg. a rifle. It's a, it is a machine. What does AR stand is AR? It is, it is, uh, a it is automatic rifle. No, no, that's not what it is. Well, I all I know is that AR 15s have no place in okay. American society other than sport clubs, okay. and I agree with him on that.
0: And of course, Greg Gutfield uh, is right here. AR does not stand for automatic rifle, that is a That is a thing that people who are for gun controls, but don't know what guns are actually really, truly commonly say they don't even know what AR stands for. AR stands for, by the way, Armalite Rifle. It is right in the name. It does not stand for automatic rifle. In fact, most AR-15s are semi-automatic. They are not automatic weapons and the difference here is if you can just hold down the trigger and it just keeps cycling keeps firing until you have no more bullets in your magazine then that's an automatic rifle a semi-automatic rifle you have to pull the trigger once for each firing now you might be able to pull the trigger really fast but you won't be firing at the same rate as an automatic rifle a bullet hose, as they're sometimes called, you won't be firing at the same rate as an automatic rifle with a semi-automatic rifle. Automatic rifles are already highly regulated. I don't think they should be. By the way, I think that that is uh, an infringement on the Second Amendment. I do not agree with infringing on the Second Amendment. If we have people who are going to use automatic rifles to commit crimes or semi-automatic rifles to commit crimes or Muzzle loaders to commit crimes. The solution should not be to treat all Americans as guilty until proven innocent or to come up with some arbitrary standard of how skilled they should be, how proficient they should be, how well-trained they should be before they're allowed to own a firearm, particularly if the person deciding how skilled they should be doesn't even know the first thing, except that bullets come out of guns and bullets kill people therefore guns bad. If you've got violent criminals, murderers, potentially mass murderers, we need to be weeding those people out and bringing them consequences, not just keeping guns away from them, which you won't be able to do anyways. You're not going to be able to keep guns away from bad men who want to do bad things, even if you ban firearms. If you ban semi-automatic rifles or AR-15s or sporting rifles or whatever you want to call them, you're not going to be able to keep firearms out of the hands of bad men. So a better solution is let's deal with the underlying root causes for why bad people do bad things with weapons, with deadly weapons. And in the meantime, make sure that the decent people who just want to mind their own business and do what is right and love their families and provide for their families and protect their families, protect themselves, protect the innocent, are able to defend themselves and their loved ones. It's as simple as that. When you call the police because there's an active shooter incident, they don't show up with please and thank you. They show up with firearms, and that is for a reason. How much better if you actually have decent people who are right there. They might even be the objects of the intended uh, criminal activity, the potential victims. Well, they don't have to be victims if the good guys with the guns are already present and armed. Period. Period. It is not for Geraldo Rivera to decide for me, for instance, whether I can own a firearm, particularly if he doesn't know the first thing about firearms. That is ridiculous. If I concede to that, then I'm not proving that I'm a more secure man any more than, as his argument goes, you've got these guys thinking that they're super macho because they own an AR-15. They have no business owning an AR-15. It's just a status symbol you know what? I think you being for gun control is not manly. Let me just say that. Freud would ask questions about how secure you are if you are afraid of weapons in an irrational way, just regardless of whether we have the right people holding them or the wrong people holding them. Also, too, it's an ironic thing. It's It's a very ironic thing to me that The left in this country maintains stubbornly that people are inherently good when it comes to what they might want to do with their unborn children or with their sexuality or with their gender. People are inherently good, and we have to just affirm whatever they say. But somehow we don't think that we should call them out on whether people are inherently good as it pertains to firearms. Now, why is that? Or or is it that these are of a piece, that they think people are inherently good and that owning a firearm is actually what corrupts people, decent people. They own the firearm and then the the firearm has this evil energy and it just takes them over. And next thing you know, they're doing evil things. Is that what it is? And that, you know, maybe, that may be, uh, but man is not inherently good and therefore you want to deal with the problem of evil in the hearts of men by not leaving yourself just completely at the mercy of evil people, providing a deterrent, providing a mechanism for defending innocent life. People are not inherently good, but there is such a thing as innocence. And we know this because the law of Moses, the law that God gave to Moses for the children of Israel treated differently in different categories, somebody who was killing their neighbor, killing some other person in the community to take their things or because they hate them versus somebody who was just defending themselves. We know that that's treated differently and it's not regarded as murder. And you do not give the death penalty to somebody who is just trying to defend themselves and their property and their family and their household as you would somebody who is breaking and entering, potentially committing violent crimes once they bump into you in the night. But if somebody has an opinion and they say, I think that this or that doesn't have any place in society, in American society, to that I would ask, why are we shipping firearms overseas to the Ukrainian people? And not just automatic weapons, but All manner of our most advanced weaponry. We are shipping overseas to the Ukrainians so that they can defend their country against Russian aggression. Why are we doing that while at the same time, the exact same party that is most in favor of sending weapons with little to no accountability for how they're used to the Ukrainian people wants to say that even semi-automatic rifles, not to mention automatic rifles or rpgs but just semi-automatic rifles have no place in american society. What's up with that? What's up with that? Moving on. Minnesota mother asks police if they saved her four toddlers from a carjacker who had driven away with them. No, your husband did is the response she gets from law enforcement. This is from Joseph McKinnon over at the Blaze. This is actually a little bit of a dated report from December 2nd of last year, but it's a pretty great story insofar as you have a father recognizing that his wife has stepped out of the vehicle. He's stepped out of the vehicle. Some guy jumps in because their car is still running. Their SUV is still running. Jumps in while their kids are still in the vehicle. They're going to unload groceries, I think is how it went. And this guy speeds off. He's going to steal their SUV and race away with it. Now, the father sees this. He's outside of the vehicle. He can't catch it in time, jump in, fight the guy, whatever. But he thinks quickly and recognizes that this guy's van is still parked across the street. And what does he find? But that the keys are in it, because apparently this guy was going to trade up. He'd probably stolen that vehicle as well. The father jumps in that van and mashes the pedal to the floor and aggressively pursues this car thief who has also abducted his four toddlers is able to basically pin his own SUV with the carjacker inside in an alleyway to where the guy can't get away from him and saves his kids the carjacker jumps out flees on foot probably wise. Good idea. Yeah, you should definitely run right now. That's a good idea because this father is obviously not amused. But this is to say as well, this is the point I make in bringing up the story in relation to these other items. What would have happened if the father had not been there, if the father had not Responded aggressively the way that he did to protect his children. He wasn't worried about the SUV, first and foremost. He was worried about getting his kids back and what might happen to them if he didn't. But what if he hadn't been there? Or what if he had been a man who is not aggressive, who is not manly? What if he, instead of pursuing this guy, had done a whole lot of navel gazing and a whole lot of introspection and started wondering, okay, are Are my kids going to be okay? Do I trust in God to protect my children? Maybe I should just pray. I'm just going to pray. And honey, call the police because it's not my job. It's not my job. That's what the police are for. Call the police. And then the police have to find this guy. For one, you've got to take the time to actually get on the phone with the dispatcher. For two, to give the dispatcher your information. For three, do you even have the clarity of thought to be able to quickly Describe your vehicle, give the license plate number, tell law enforcement, tell the dispatcher what street this guy was headed down and where you think he might be driving to by the time law enforcement officers are able to be dispatched. I mean, there's so many variables. There are so many reasons why this could have ended up much more tragically and not a happy story. If the father had not been there, if he had not taken the initiative aggressively, putting himself in high gear to go after his kids and to rescue them, there are so many ways that this could have ended up not being a happy story. And let me give you another thing to chew on. If the carjacker's van had not been parked across the street with the keys in it, what the father would have just taken off on foot? chased the carjacker in a vehicle. That wouldn't have worked. So what he needed was he needed something that was able to keep up with the bad guy and overtake the bad guy, at least long enough to crash him into an alleyway and pin the vehicle there. That's what he needed. If he hadn't have had that, he would have been wholly dependent on law enforcement to be responsive, hopefully in time, if he had not had the means to engage this threat to his children in a timely manner, this might not have ended up being a happy story. The same exact thing applies. The the same exact reasoning should apply with regards to firearms ownership. If the bad guy has a firearm, I don't have time to call law enforcement and wait for them to show up. My family and I are in danger right this second. If I don't have the ability to match the lethality of this wicked man who is threatening my loved ones, those who are under my care, if I don't have the aggressiveness to be able to engage this guy, the strength to be able to engage this guy, well, then a lot of unhappy outcomes could result. There was a story I just read this past week about an entire family, including a six-month-old baby, who were found shot to death in a home in California. And last I saw an update on the story, this is suspected as a Mexican drug cartel-related crime, as in the drug cartel had some problem with maybe a member of this family, and rather than just killing that member of the family who had gotten mixed up with them. They killed the entire family to send a message to anybody else that would cross them. Not only will we come after you, we will eliminate your entire family, including the six month old baby. It's a horrific story. It's a horrific story. But how would it be if you said, well, just call the cops, right? Sorry. No, I I will call the cops, absolutely. Or I will tell my wife or my sons, hey, call the cops. But while they are calling the cops and while we are waiting for law enforcement to show up, I'm going to grab my AR, my Armalite rifle. (laughs) I'm going to grab a semi-automatic handgun. I'm going to grab whatever I have that is most lethal in that moment that has the highest capacity because maybe it's not just one intruder. Maybe it's multiple intruders who have a problem with me or a member of my household or want something that belongs rightfully to us. And maybe they also are going to be armed. They probably will be. But let's just say maybe, and I just don't even know, if there's a possibility that they might be, then I need to be able to meet them with equal or greater, if possible, lethality for the sake of my family. What has no place in our society is effeminate men, or that should be the case, that we don't tolerate effeminacy in men. And we don't tolerate tyrannical effeminacy, where the effeminate men who are corrupt want every other man to be just as unmanly as they are, or just as corrupt as they are. At any time, some other man is more manly than they are, they feel threatened and want to knock that guy down a few pegs want to malign his character or imply untoward things about him. No, that's what should have no place in American society. Men being men and having the ability to protect themselves, their families, their loved ones, their neighbors, their household, that absolutely must continue to be a feature. And it needs to be more of a feature even than it already is. It's not a bug. It's a feature of virtuous masculinity that we would be able to, to protect our households. We have a requirement to provide for and protect the members of our own households, especially. And we need to not let that go. We need to lean into that, to God's glory and no less because we trust God, only all the more because we trust God and we want to obey and honor God. But moving on, here's a story that I think should be responded to in a different kind of protectiveness. I think, again, this is where fathers need to step up, because if this is the most assertive, most aggressive influence in the life of your children, you're doing it wrong. Gentlemen, you're doing it wrong. But here is a video posted by Libs of TikTok of a public school teacher laughing and bragging about her bringing, quote, political unrest in her school through certain kinds of engagement. Take a listen.
2: I have my first day as a sub today, and there are many things I would like to talk about. But today, I would like to talk about how I am the political unrest that Cedar City needs. So besides the fact that I dyed my hair purple last night and I have two visible tattoos, I wrote my pronouns as she any up on the board. I was teaching 10th grade, and I told this to all my classes, and it wasn't until the last period where someone was like, what's the second pronoun? and so i explained i was like i do she any pronouns i do go by any pronouns she he they it anything but i am totally okay with you just referring to me as she and they were kind of confused about it for a minute and i was like and you can't misgender me so don't even think about it i do respond to all genders and this one kid just like looks down at this iq 1000 my guy iconic. Thank you. And I just realized that my hydro flask is in this video and that's my, I don't care what the Bible says sticker, which I forgot I left up at the front of the classroom when I was in the back office.
0: Again, I wrote a book. It's available. You can buy a copy for yourself. It's called, and this is why we homeschool. And this is why we homeschool by the way. (laughs) I don't care what the Bible says. That's on her water bottle. She's intentionally trying to discomfort and confuse the kids in her 10th grade class. You might say, how ah, about are 10th graders? She definitely thinks she can have an influence on them and their parents and the community and the direction of the country by doing what she's doing. And she's bragging about it. So she doesn't fear any consequences whatsoever. She should. There is a God in heaven who will not be mocked. He, he says he will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So also a young woman, her pronouns are just whatever you want to call me. Mm, no, no, that's, that's ridiculous. You are a corrupt person and you need Jesus. You need to repent of your godlessness, your hostility towards God, your hostility towards the people of God. I don't care what the Bible says. Why would you put that on a sticker on your water bottle? Because you're trying to provoke and tweak Christians who would say, but the Bible says this. You are not the person who should be instructing young people or people of any age whatsoever on anything at all. You have no wisdom. You are in major trouble if you don't repent. Anybody who's going to follow after you, it will go very badly for them. It will be the destruction of their being. Turn back now. But if you won't, at a bare minimum... Parents ought not to be subjecting their children to your tutelage because what are they, What are, for one, it's a waste of time because you have nothing valuable to teach so long as the very first and most important thing you want to teach is to mock God. You have nothing, anything else that you're going to bring as a value is subsumed when we do the cost benefit by the fact that you are intentionally strategically, flagrantly trying to encourage these 10th graders to mock God, to have no fear of God. It's satanic. The the purple hair is whatever. That doesn't trigger me. So what? Diet? Hot pink or neon green? I really don't care what color your hair is, but you're trying to create political unrest towards the end of driving Christian influence from society, from the hearts and minds of the young people who are being entrusted to you. They shouldn't be entrusted to you. And this, again, this is another area where men need to be men. They need to be quick thinking and aggressive and protective. Get your kids out of the public schools. No offense or buts. Please and thank you. I said it. Speaking of, though, some reporting by Lawrence Wilson from January 13th over at the Epoch Times, Says that public school enrollment dropped by 1.4 million students and that that is posing a financial challenge for big cities. The numbers here come from the fall of 2020 and represent a 10 year low of 49.4 million students. That is 49.4 million too many, I would say, given the kind of instruction that they are receiving. But if all options are on the table, as a certain superintendent is quoted saying, all options are on the table for how to stem the tide, parents need to have the courage, fathers in particular, It needs to stop being mothers who are the manliest member of the household or the most assertive, the most aggressive member of the household. It needs to be fathers consistently at the school board meeting, getting up and saying, you either fire this teacher, or I'm pulling my kids out. You either stop teaching this godlessness, or I'm pulling my kids out. You either stop requiring my daughter to change and shower with boys who say that they're girls, or I am pulling my kids out. Fathers have to say that, and they have to mean it. And it needs to not just be words. It needs to be do it. I would say, don't even bother. Don't waste your breath. Just get your kids out and then write them a letter and explain. This is why. And if they beg and plead on their hands and knees, you still don't have to send your kids back. If they say, oh yeah, we'll make whatever changes you want us to make because we can't have a school with no kids in it. You still don't have to send your kids to them because fundamentally those are your children that God has entrusted to you, not the state. They're not the state's kids. They're your kids. So act like it. Men, fathers, be men. And it's good to be a man. But speaking of how far this can go with a certain kind of thinking, China's population just shrank for the first time since 1961. The one-child policy lasted from 1980 to 2015, 2015. They started to relax the one child policy in China because they realized when parents can only have one, they are aborting the daughters. And now we're going to have a nation of boys and men and those boys and men can't reproduce. That's going to be a short lived competitive advantage if you're just a country full of boys and men, but they can't get married because there aren't women for them to marry. Or the other problem is going to be that a nation full of boys and men and no fear of God and a belief in communism will sally forth and try to invade and conquer and carry off the women of neighboring countries or else buy them if they can, male-order bride style. But it looks like the one-child policy worked after a fashion because the whole premise was if you reduce the population— reduce the birth rate, you will increase the living standard. That might work for a little bit because you're 100% focused on your economic activity, generating wealth. You're going to have a bigger house, a nicer house made out of nicer materials, drive a newer car, a nicer car, a fancier car. You're going to have nicer clothes. You're going to go on nicer vacations for a while. And then when you get old and the robots aren't there, they're not quite to the level yet to be able to take care of you or the government controls everything, owns everything, and just says, "Nope, you've served your purpose. It's time for you to go. Soylent green is people. Your living standard is not going to be so good as the guy who had a large family and trained up his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And now those children are taking care of him and his wife in their old age. Your living standard is not going to be as good as that guy because you made foolish choices. It was the grasshopper and the ant. You didn't store up for winter and then the winter came and now your Chinese communist government has decided that if there's not enough food for everybody, you don't need to eat. Mm, No, I maintain that is a very evil way to relate, not just to all of the babies who've been aborted under this policy, but it's a very evil way to relate to the entire idea of the family. What was the one God seeking by making the man and the woman one flesh with a portion of the spirit between them? What was he seeking? Godly offspring. Whose children are they? The fathers first and foremost, and the mothers, not the state's. My wife sent me a meme this morning, actually first thing this morning, and it's based off of some stills from the movie Inception, great movie by Christopher Nolan, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, several other notable actors, Michael Caine, for instance, but it's this conversation that's being had in the bar where Leonardo DiCaprio's character is trying to implant the idea that he's been paid to suggest in the rich heir to the fortunes mind that he should break up his father's company when his father passes away. So it's taking those stills, but then putting other dialogue in it. It's a meme, right? It's a meme. You know what a meme is, but the first caption is you had another kid. How many are you going to have? And then the answer more than my enemies. And then DiCaprio's eyes narrowed to slits like, "Mm, shoot, good one. (laughs) How many kids are you going to have? More than my enemies. More than my enemies. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Moving on, though. Speaking of China, Kevin McCarthy has recently won a position as Speaker of the House with the slim Republican majority in the House of Representatives, the U.S. Congress, and he is making some good moves from what I see so far. He's giving committee assignments back to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar after they were removed from committees in the previous Congress. But he's also taking some people off of committees, including California Rep. Eric Swalwell. And Swalwell, for his part, is whining about this, acting shocked, appalled, indignant, acting like a victim, playing a victim, pretending that this is unfair. And here's what Kevin McCarthy has to say regarding that. Take a listen.
1: If you got the briefing I got from the FBI, you wouldn't have Swalwell on any committee. And you're gonna tell me other Democrats couldn't fill that slot? He cannot get a security clearance in the private sector. So would you like to give him a government clearance? You asked me questions about Santos. You ask the questions about Swalwell. Not only was he getting a clearance, he was inside an intel committee. He had more information than the majority of all the members. Did you ever raise that issue? No. But you should have. You're going to tell me there's 200 other Democrats that couldn't fill that slot, but they kept them on it? The only way that they even knew it came forward is when they went to nominate him to the intel committee. And then the FBI came and told the leadership then, he's got a problem. And they kept him on. That jeopardized all of us.
0: And of course that's right. Uh, Of course, that's right. And that's the way we have to think about this. If Swalwell cares more about his own foolish pride than he does about national security, he has no business in Congress. He has no business on the House Intelligence Committee getting very important security briefings that have to do with national security, ours and that of our allies. And if you didn't know what the FBI was alluding to, making known as far as Swalwell's problem was that he was having a very intimate relationship with a Chinese spy named, if I recall, Feng Feng. She was literally a Chinese Communist Party spy, and he was literally in bed with the enemy. And the Democrats were told this by the FBI, and the Democrats kept Swalwell on the House Intelligence Committee. Kevin McCarthy is entirely right to remove Swalwell from the House Intelligence Committee. That might not be enough, but it's a good start. And it is absolutely, first and foremost, a matter of national security. You can't have the Chinese reading our mail at the very highest level and then say that this is somehow for our own good. And if the Democrats care more about their own party, and they care more about their own foolish pride than they do about national security, they should not be entrusted with our national security, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. So good call, good move by McCarthy removing Swalwell from the House Intelligence Committee. Speaking of good moves, and I hope this happens, I hope it comes to pass, Daniel Chayton, over at the Daily Wire published a report Kevin McCarthy shares best way to release January six tapes. And just briefly, I'll sum it up for you. The Twitter files are how this video should be released. Let everybody see. Let everybody watch. Let everybody hear when there's audio. And they can see for themselves. Let's have transparency here. If this was worse than 9-11, worse than Pearl Harbor, release the thousands of hours of footage, 14,000 hours of footage, release it so that we can see and hold accountable our public officials, our bureaucrats, law enforcement, or as the case may be, if the footage makes this plain, the people who went and stormed the Capitol, as they say, or just walked in and walked around and jokingly posed for pictures at Nancy Pelosi's desk running off with her lectern, if the footage proves the claims that the Democrats have been making, the hay that they've been trying to make of January 6th to go after political opponents claiming that they shouldn't be able to run for office or hold office or just arresting them, throwing them in prison indefinitely, many of them committing suicide. Also, many Capitol Police officers committing suicide. Look that up. What's that about? Do they perhaps fall victim to the old adage that dead men tell no tales? Mm, that could be. That could well be. But here is Rep Matt Gates from Florida on CNN being asked about the idea of just releasing the 14,000 hours of January 6th footage, whether that would jeopardize national security. Take a listen.
3: On another matter that pertains to video, you, you apparently were able to earn a concession from him that all of the security video from Capitol Hill on January 6th is going to enter the public domain. First of all, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that was something you were able to get him to agree to. Secondly, what is it you want to see? What do you expect to see in that video? Well, I think that you likely will see a lot of exculpatory evidence where people may have been in some sort of technical violation of federal criminal law, but never intended to harm anyone and never intended to breach any type of security uh, barrier. A lot of those barriers may have been taken down. I'm a believer that transparency answers a lot of questions and whether there's higher criminal acuity for some, lower criminal acuity for others, releasing that video will be important. Also, we already know from whistleblower interviews we've done that there were or federal assets and agents that were on the ground that day to be able to observe their conduct, their potential coordination with one another would be of great interest to many of us on the Judiciary Committee and I think many people throughout the country. So prosecutors have said, and I'm thinking in the context of the case of Eric Torrens, he from Tennessee it shouldn't be released because it's going to jeopardize security that too much will enter the public domain about the nooks and crannies my words not theirs of the Capitol. are you worried that you're going to jeopardize the security of yourself and your colleagues if all of this video comes into the public space no almost every inch of the Capitol is subject to video surveillance if you don't believe that go into any casino in america and you see the extent to which the zooms and pans and tilts uh, inform on how people see these things. So if the security of members of Congress is dependent on shielding the perspectives of these cameras, then it's not a very good security regime. I think that's a red herring, and I think it's, a, it's an argument made by the Department of Justice because they don't want to expose the extent to which there might have been federal assets or agents enhancing criminal acuity. We don't know that. That's why we want to see the footage, but I think we'll all be safe and sound even following the release of that information.
0: And I agree. I agree. I agree from the standpoint of, one, the public needs to know what happened and not just take the media's word for it and not just take the Democratic Party's word for it. We need to know what happened on January 6th because the stakes are extraordinarily high with regards to public trust and cohesion. For two, we're being asked to make major changes in our thinking And in our voting patterns and in what ideas we communicate or don't based on what is said to have happened on January 6th, in order for us to be making informed decisions and not accept a faulty premise that is totalitarian as you extend it forward, we have to actually look at the evidence ourselves instead of just taking Democrats' word for it or the media's word for it. Just trust me. Just trust me. You guys are guilty. No, no, no. You don't need to see the evidence presented against you because here's the thing. This isn't just a charge being leveled at president Trump, for instance, you know, how would it be if he was accused of inciting violence on January 6th, encouraging his supporters to go and storm the Capitol and assault lawmakers and overthrow the government, but you couldn't actually listen to his speech where he said that, how would that be right? That would be wrong and it would be foolish to go along with it. So also insofar as the accusation is being made for anybody who runs for office or who is or was serving in office, who was a part of that movement on January 6th, opposing the certification of the election results of the 2020 election due to irregularities. Insofar as they all stand accused, we need to know towards the end of determining their innocence or guilt whether they should be allowed to run for office or serve in office, much less those who are in prison to be able to weigh whether they are being served actual justice or whether they are political enemies of the Democrats and therefore are spending their lives in confinement, many of them solitary confinement, whether they are being served justice or they are being treated in a highly immoral, unethical, illegal, and even ungodly way just because they disagreed politically. As they were told, they have the right to as Americans. For us to determine their innocence or guilt so that we can hold our government accountable, we have to see the footage. So also, if, as Gates is alluding to, there were federal agents who actually herded the crowd in the direction of violence, perhaps even caused the violence, what violence there was, what vandalism there was. And so far as there were security failures that were maybe on purpose so as to create the pretext for going after political opponents in American society, in government, we need to see the footage so that we can hold those federal agents or agencies accountable. Insofar as there may have been Black Lives Matter or Antifa infiltrators in the crowd dressed up just like the Boston Tea Party, dressed up as someone they weren't, so as to frame Trump supporters and Republicans and conservatives for crimes that they didn't commit. We need to see the footage so that we can hold them accountable. Insofar as even if you weren't at the Capitol on January 6th, now just to vote for or support President Trump or Republicans or conservatives to identify yourself with them, you are smeared as being a potential terrorist threat. We need to see the footage so that we can clear our names because that's you and me, friends. That's you and me that are being lumped in if we oppose what's happening in the schools, what's been happening in society, what's been happening with our economy, the whole kit and caboodle. We have to see the footage in order to be able to weigh and measure what we ought to do next, whether that is to change our wicked ways, to stop supporting people we shouldn't support, or to hold accountable folks who have acted very badly, all the while claiming that they are the protectors of our constitutional republic, or as they like to call it, our democracy, although it's not a democracy. It is a constitutional republic with democratic features. So Gates is right. Actually, the greater threat to national security is not that somebody would be able to review the tapes and get a layout of the U.S. Capitol for staging future uh, criminal actions, hostile actions. That's not the biggest threat to national security. The biggest threat to our national security is that January 6th would be used to do unlawful and even evil things to our country and to the people of this country and to the people of other countries. That's the biggest threat to our national security, bar none. But speaking of speeches and parliamentary (laughs) lawmaking or deliberative bodies, let's hop across the pond for a moment. And I'm going to play a speech for you from a certain Konstantin Kisin regarding climate change. And there's some language here. I warn you. It's not absolutely uh, the worst, but you might not regard it as polite. So I tell you that on the front end. I will pass along the language warning that Joel Abbott put in his share of this over at Not the Bee, January 16th. This from a tweet by Brandon Taylor Moore from January 14th. Take a listen.
4: Now, I want to talk to those of you who are woke and who are open to rational argument. A small minority, I accept. (laughs) Because one of the tenets of wokeness is, of course, that your feelings matter more than the truth. But I believe in you. I believe there are those of you here who are woke, who are open to rational argument. So let me make one. We are told that your generation cares more than any other about one issue in particular. And that issue is climate change. We're told that many of you suffer from climate anxiety. You wish to save the planet. And for tonight, and tonight only, I will join you. I will join you in worshipping at the feet of Saint Greta of climate change. (laughs) Let us all accept, right here, right now, that we are living through a climate emergency and our stocks of polar bears are running extremely low. I join you in this view. I truly do. Now, what are we to do about this huge problem facing humanity? What can we in Britain do? We can only do one thing. You know why? This country is responsible for 2% of global carbon emissions. Which means that if Britain was to sink into the sea right now, it would make absolutely no difference to the issue of climate change. You know why? Because the future of the climate is going to be decided in Asia and in Latin America by poor people who couldn't give a shit about saving the planet. No, thank you. No, thank you. It's going to be decided by poor people in Asia and Latin America, who don't care about saving the planet. You know why? Because they're poor. Because they're poor. I come from Russia, which is not a poor country, it's a middle-income country. Twenty percent of households in Russia do not have an indoor toilet. What they have is an outdoor toilet. And I don't mean one of those nice porta that we get here, I don't even mean a Glastonbury port I mean a wooden shack with a hole in the ground that holds a collected fermented memory of the last 10,000 visits. (laughs) How many of you are going to go home tonight and say, let's rip out our bathroom and erect a Siberian shithouse in the back garden? (laughs) And if you're not, why should they? 120 million people in China do not have enough food. I don't mean that they don't get dessert, I mean they suffer from malnutrition. That means that their immune system is breaking down because they don't have enough food. You're not going to get them to stay poor. Imagine you're Xi Jinping, the leader of China. When you were 10 years old, there was a revolution, a cultural revolution in your country. And people came and they put your father in prison. Your mother had to denounce him. Your sister killed herself. And you, no longer enjoying the protection of your formerly powerful father, were sent to a village where you lived in a cave house. And here you are, decades later, you have clawed your way up the bloody and greasy pole of Chinese politics to be the undisputed supreme leader of the very communist party that destroyed your family. And you know that the main thing you have to do to survive and to stay in power is to deliver the one thing that the people of China want? Prosperity. Economic growth. Where do you think climate change ranks on Xi Jinping's list of priorities? A third of all children who live in extreme poverty in the world live in India. That means they are starving and dying of preventable disease. Now, about 15 months ago, my wife got pregnant. Not me, because we're old school. And For nine months we talked about what our boy would look like what he might do when he grows up We looked at baby scans and videos on YouTube about what the fetus looks like at nine months and 12 months and 20 months And eventually he was born and he is this cute little bundle of joy. He's cuter than about 80% of puppies, right? <laughs> Now if you said to me that I had a choice either my son had a serious risk of starving or dying from a preventable disease in the next year. Or I could press a button, and he would live. He would go to school. He would bring his first girlfriend home. He'd go to university and graduate and become a woke idiot. (laughs) And then he'd get a job and get married and have children and become a man. But all I have to do is press this button. And for every day of my son's life, a giant plume of CO2 is going to get released into the atmosphere. Now, you're all very young, and most of you are not parents. Let me tell you something. There is not a parent in the world who would not smash that button so hard their hand bled. You are not going to get these people to stay poor. You're not even going to get them to not want to be richer. And so, I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, there is only one thing we can do in this country to stop climate change, and that is to make scientific and technological breakthroughs that will create the clean energy that is not only clean, but also cheap. And the... No, thank you. And the only... I I want everyone to get home on time today, which is not going to happen. And the only thing that wokeness has to offer in exchange is to brainwash bright young minds like you to believe that you are victims, to believe that you have no agency, to believe that what you must do to improve the world is to complain, is to protest, is to throw soup on paintings. And we on this side of the house are not on this side of the house because we do not wish to improve the world. We sit on this side of the house because we know that the way to improve the world is to work, is to create, it is to build. And the problem with woke culture is that it's trained too many young minds like yours to forget about that. Thank you very much.
0: Well said, well said. And he got a very loud and genuine, I trust, applause uh, after that cheering and clapping and all the rest. According to a, a piece over at the National Review by Ari Blaff from just yesterday, this was an Oxford Union debate on wokeness and Constantin Kissin is a British comedian and podcaster. But this is fantastic. This is excellent. And he makes a number of very important points as pertains to... The responsibility of men, the responsibility of husbands and fathers to provide and protect. This is not to be taken lightly and it's not to be waved off. The wokeness is contrary to good science, good taste, good theology, good judgment. In short, the wokeness and the climate change hysteria, which is seeing youth in the West Enlisted to tear down their own countries, their own societies, their own schools and businesses and communities, their very lives. This wokeness is satanic. And the antidote to it needs to be that young men in particular are more manly. Read your Bible, read history, study theology and philosophy and rhetoric, practice articulating ideas, forming ideas, testing ideas, so that you can provide for and protect a wife and children in a world where very dishonest, greedy, egotistical men want to take everything that is your inheritance for themselves. Briefly, I'll hop back to Instagram here. Instagram is as close as I get to being in the public square these days. Since I am still off of Twitter, I am still banned from Twitter for having dared to talk back to at Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee. The woke folk at Twitter decided that I shouldn't call him out and say that what he had said was retarded, even though it was. I was speaking up in defense of Marsha Blackburn, senator from Tennessee, over and against his absurd call for her to be removed and replaced, but turning point USA has a post. So you want to know about the great reset and the world economic forum. Fun facts. What is the world economic forum? Every winter titans of industry and government from around the world who control vast amounts of power, influence, and wealth gather in Davos, Switzerland for the annual meeting of the world economic forum. Their mission statement reads, quote, The World Economic Forum is an independent international organization committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas, end quote. While their backgrounds, ethnicities, and citizenship may differ, they are all united in sharing the vision of some form of one-world government, a true global communist community. What is the Great Reset? The WEF is finding its way into every aspect of the average American's daily life. This unwelcome intrusion is being conducted under the auspices of serving humanity. How they are going about it is something they have labeled the Great Reset. Through the Great Reset, the WEF seeks to replace the constitutionally protected liberty of American citizens with a form of collective control and create a secular new world order. To be successful, the WEF must tear down the existing economic and social infrastructure of Western civilization. They need to break everything before they can put it back together. We are programmed to be a free people. We are programmed to be an independent nation, but are we destined to remain as either The choice is ours and the moment to choose is now? That's the write-up from Charlie Kirk's Turning Point USA. Another helpful share they have is a screenshot of a tweet by Michael Seifert, I have to rely on other people sharing with me what is shared in the public square by such folk. But the tweet reads as follows. Attendees at this week's World Economic Forum include 116 billionaires, 52 heads of state, 600 CEOs, 56 finance ministers, 19 central bank governors, 30 trade ministers, 35 foreign ministers, 16 American politicians, including our FBI director, Chris Wray. Pay attention to Davos, they say. And this leads me to one final point, and that is that I am in the process right now of exploring with certain select men what engagement in local politics might look like for we as Christians. We as Christian husbands and fathers, more to the point, what might we do to help shore up the local political situation And by that, I mean that it would know what is good and what is evil, that it would do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God as an extension, not as a escape from leading and loving our families well, serving in the church, honoring God with our lives. The antidote to this global vision will have to be engagement in local politics civic engagement. The consequences, if we don't, I think, I fear, will be very similar to what might have happened if that husband and father in the story from Minnesota that I shared with you earlier had not jumped in the idling van and raced after the carjacker to rescue his four toddlers. You just don't know what might happen when somebody tries to claim your property for their own with your children inside. So as a final parting encouragement to you, I say, let's dig into God's word with a view to what our responsibility is as men of God. Not to be passive, not to be foppish, but to do good, to seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile. For in its welfare, we will find our welfare, In its welfare, we will find the welfare of our families, and our friends, and our churches, and even, yes, those who don't know Christ. I was thinking the other day about the claim that we ought not to engage in politics, because what we really need to do is make disciples. If our unsaved neighbors don't know Jesus, what's the point Of getting involved in local politics. What they really need is Jesus. To that I say, when I, as a father, survey my eight children and I think of my responsibility, yes, it includes being a role model to them of God's goodness, of Christ-likeness, of reliance on God's provision, his faithfulness, that he will keep his promises, his grace, extending that grace to Those around me asking forgiveness when I err, but I don't have only that responsibility and consider it a waste of time if I am working to pay the rent or our utilities or to buy groceries or to put gas in the van or to buy books for their education. It is not either or, and I don't wait until they are Christians to feed them, to clothe them, to house them, to educate them, to love them. All the more do I provide and protect as a husband, as as a father, in light of the gospel and as an apologetic, as a way of pointing them to the gospel. This is not either or, and it's not all about power in the abstract Or for selfish reasons. It's about the recognition that God has given me a responsibility and the means to meet that responsibility. So also, you extrapolate that out to the unbelievers in your neighborhood, in your city, in your workplace, in your school, in your larger circle of family and friends. We don't just say, be warmed and filled. That's not us. That's not what God commands. On the contrary, If we see our brother is hungry, we feed him. If we see that he is naked, we clothe him. If we see that he is exposed to the elements, we shelter him. And if we see that others are abusing him, we open our mouths on his behalf. We speak up. We engage. We must. But more on that in the days and weeks and months to come. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.